Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. And you're welcome to The Michael Reid Show with me, Cahill Dervin, sitting in for Michael today. Coming up this morning, Flora McCarthy of the IFA on government plans to indemnify farmers against claims from hillwalkers. Sarah Benson of Ruama on the first conviction of a sex buyer in Ireland under new legislation and what that conviction of a Rithout resident means. And Fine Gael MEP Mairead McGuinness on the latest Brexit developments after Theresa May presented Plan B to the Houses of Parliament yesterday. And it's at the Houses of Parliament that we're going to begin on Theresa May's Plan B in terms of the backstop and Brexit, because joining us on the line now is Deputy Jerry Adams, Sinn Fein TD for Loud. Good morning to you, Deputy Adams. Good morning, Deputy. Good morning, Carl. Plan B, as introduced by Theresa May in the House of Commons yesterday, did you see anything to offer any hope to our listeners and your constituents that we will not return to a hard border? Well, it isn't the Plan B, Carl. Uh, she's playing for time. And we can just remind ourselves that this is all a calamity, uh, a direct result of machinations within the Tory party in England. Uh, that's where the problem started, and that's where the problem has to uh, end. So, life, you know, dreadfully badly affected for the last almost 100 years by partition, enjoying the relative uh, difference in the last 20 years, is bound to be, as the whole island will be, badly affected if the Tories are allowed to go ahead with what they appear to be set upon doing, which is calamity upon calamity, confusion upon uh, confusion. And what we need is our government to remain very, very firm, very, very tight, and refusing to uh, bow to any of these ridiculous demands from others. The Tories are from the Democratic Union's party. You say she's buying time, but I mean, we are running out of time. The 29th of March is less than 10 weeks away. Well, that's true, but I mean, all, all we can do and remember uh, this government, well, at least its predecessor, uh, its response to Brexit when it emerged was pathetic. Uh, I mean, it reflected also the position of the Fianna Fáil uh, leader. That improved when Leah Varadkar and Simon Copenhagen came in as uh, Taoiseach and as Tanister, and they did present, and we urged them to do so, uh, a better all-island position. But what they have avoided doing is challenging the British government, or indeed the European Union, to accept the democratic vote of the people in the North. We, we have to remind ourselves 
that the majority of people in the north voted to remain. And that's that's a crucial part in the argument, which has not been effectively put for, for, for whatever good work has been done by the government. They have not put that case as they should put that case. And the reason they don't do that is because they're tied into the niceties of not offending unionists too much and also of recognising the constitutional, current constitutional position that the North remains uh, temporarily part of the Union. So I think what the government needs to do is to focus in on the way the the entitlements, the rights and the vote of the people in the North have been ignored by the British government. And yet the DUP are now and still remain major power brokers in Brexit. Yes, but that, as I said before, uh, will end in tears. It's temporary. Uh, we have to have a long view. If you, if you want to look 10 years up the road and then work back to this position, the DUP position is totally and absolutely untenable. Its current position of supporting Brexit runs against the interests of the business sector in the north, the agricultural sector in the north, the small business sector in the north, the community sector in the north, and generally against the wishes of the majority of people in the North who voted to uh, remain. I also have to say, and I've, I've, I've taken issue with the Taoiseach and the Tanishta on this matter in the Dáil chamber last week, the government has actually acquiesced on the issue of rights in the North. <coughs> you will recall, Cahill, in December 2017, there was a joint report, and the Taoiseach at the time described that joint report, and I quote, as rock solid, as cast iron, and politically bulletproof. And paragraph 52 of that report said specifically, and I quote again, that people in the North who are are Irish citizens will continue to enjoy rights as EU citizens, including where they reside in Northern Ireland. And the Taoiseach said that everyone born in the North continue to have the right to Irish and therefore EU citizenship. Now, he went on to say that no one in the North would be left behind by an Irish government. But that commitment, which I have just uh, read out to you, that commitment that is a very specific commitment to those who live in the North is missing from the withdrawal agreement. And the government is yet to give an explanation for why something which the Taoiseach described as rock-solid, cast-iron and politically bulletproof, why that is missing from the withdrawal agreement. And that's why we have to keep our eye on this government, on this Taoiseach and on this Taoiseach. There is a feeling, Deputy Adams, that all these developments in Brexit are, o- are only going to push the, the calls for a referendum on, on the island for a united Ireland and the possibility for a united Ireland. What do you say to that? Well, it certainly has put a focus on on the issue. Sinn Féin have had a long-standing position going back to the Good Friday Agreement, which we helped to negotiate and which I personally was involved in, and that is that there's now a democratic and peaceful way to decide the future of this island by way of a referendum on the Union. And Sinn Féin have made it very clear that we want to see that uh, referendum established. And we also want to see those of, of us who want Irish unity winning that referendum. And I think, furthermore, 
that that should be the position. And Mary the McDonald made it the point very well yesterday of the hunter's anniversary of the first doll when she said the government should establish a forum to look at the future of the island, to look at how the island can be shared, how we can work out our own uh, way of governing ourselves. And, you know, the government won't do that. Why why won't the government? You you plan, or you're supposed to plan, on everything that you do. Every sector needs a plan. You, you, You want to set up a small business, you're asked for a business plan. We're, we're in a, 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 a really dangerous, difficult, uh, challenging phase in our history. And yes, there, there will be opportunities coming out of it. But the government doesn't have a plan 100 years on, 100 years after partition, uh, of engaging and developing a forum to decide on the future. Why? Why well, do does you, the government not have such a plan? Do you think, Deputy, that Theresa May and the DUP are pushing that call for a referendum, are pushing it closer to reality with their current stance? Well, I don't want it. And, and, and my own uh, personal view of this is that we will only get such a referendum when an Irish government demands it. And we will only get an Irish government demands it. We only get an Irish government to make that demand when it becomes a popular uh, demand. That's certainly a popular demand among uh, nationalists in the north. It's an option which has been looked at by those who want to remain within the European Union, who would be from a unionist heritage, but who now realise that perhaps the only way to remain within the European Union is through a United Ireland. I'm not saying that they're becoming United Irelanders, but they certainly uh, respect, acknowledge and enjoy living on an island where we can travel back and forth. I mean, if you're moving from Dundalk or from Drogheda to Newry, uh, next, after, after this goes through, are you going to need a green card? Well, there was a report yesterday that only 60 lorries from the north would be allowed into the Republic every day. And the Confederation of British Industry has warned that the Brexit, as it stands, with no-deal Brexit, will cost industry in Northern Ireland £15 billion over the coming years. Well, there are the latest stats in a, a never-ending list of stats which all prove that Brexit is bad for the people of this island, which is why, obviously, those people in the north have voted to remain, voted to remain. And as I said before, Cahill, that should be respected. Were you concerned that the Good Friday Agreement was brought into debate, even though Theresa May has said it's not up for discussion? I'm trying to distinguish between what was press reports and what is, you know, reality. Uh, Obviously, there can be no unilateral movement away from the Good Friday Agreement, even though the British government are remiss on elements of the Good Friday Agreement. They cannot change it without uh, the say-so. And because it's an international treaty, it cannot be done without the say-so of people on, on, on this side. And so I, I, I don't have concerns about that. I think that, in many ways, is a bit of a distraction. I do have concerns with what the Tonister said uh, in the debate that I was part of last week when he actually uh, praised the uh, British government for for recognising its own obligation under the Good Friday Agreement to its credit. Now, the Taoiseach knows that that's stuff and nonsense. He knows that the British government are remiss in terms of their obligations 
on arrange of issues from legacy issues from the Dublin Monaghan bombing, holding up uh, inquests, and then currently the ongoing difficulties which led to the collapse of the uh, administration of the government in the north, which is Irish language rights and other rights which are available in England, Scotland, Wales, and in this uh, state, but which are not available to the people in the north. What do you say to those new IRA members who have caused chaos and, and brought real terror to the streets of Derry since Saturday? Well, they've, they've hijacked the name IRA. Uh, the, the IRA have gone. Uh, whatever one thinks about the IRA and its actions in its time, when an open, democratic and peaceful way to establish Irish unity was established, the uh, IRA leadership and the IRA, the vast majority of Republicans indeed, responded positively and sensibly uh, to that. What we're seeing in Derry are acts of hooliganism. They are not in the interest of the people of Derry. They don't have the support of the people of Derry. There's no rhyme or reason to it at all. And, you know, what LMFM should do is go looking for the spokespersons for these groups and ask them the rationale behind what they're doing. They should go away. Are they responding to Brexit or are they responding to the lack of a government instalment at this present time? It's, 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 there have been actions. Instalment has been in place. Remember, one of the, the largest uh, fatalities and one of the biggest atrocities was on Oma, uh, not long after the Good Friday Agreement and when things were looking very, very uh, bright. So the, the small, non-representative groups and the isolated incidents that they're involved in are not in response to any particular uh, scenario at any given time. They, they are just the workings out of a silliness and of a nonsense. But does, the, does this intensify the need for both yourselves and for the DUP to get back talking and get back into Stormont? Well, there's always an onus upon those of us who have the mandate to govern to be in government. But you can only be in government in the North if it's a coalition, and a coalition can only be put in place in terms of agreements, and that agreement at the moment, uh, the DUP have chosen uh, to side with the Tories against the interests of the people of the North, as opposed to with Sinn Féin and other parties in the interests of the people of the North. Sammy Wilson did say yesterday that there there is a, an opportunity for con- for conciliation in terms of their agreement with the Tories. Do you think it's time now for the DUP to offer conciliation to Sinn Féin? Well, I've, I've been some Sammy, and you know, I, I don't you know. I I got on personally well with Sammy Wilson when I was up at Stormont, uh, but he but he plays to uh, the audience too much for my liking. Uh, at at the moment, he and his party are led by their Westminster group, who are probably a bit carried away with themselves uh, because they have this arrangement with the. Uh, and the Assembly Group needs to assert itself. The, the DUP uh, needs to face up to its responsibilities. And the two governments, you know, I, I heard the uh, Tommy Sergeant talking about two problem parties, and Simon Coveney knows <laughs> two problem parties. He, he knows, I mean, he, he, he met the DUP uh, about two weeks ago for a formal meeting. That's the first time in over a year that they actually agreed to meet with the Tannister. So this is this is a, a nonsense being peddled that there's a problem with Sinn Féin and with the DUP. 
the DUP have a have a wing which is essentially fundamentalist, and it's what's dictating the pace, as well as it's uh, Westminster bound uh, cadre of of leaders, as a, as opposed to Arden Foster. Who knows that there are going to be Irish language rights? Who knows that there are going to be marriage equality rights? Who knows that there are going to be women? reproductive rights. She knows all these things are going to uh, happen. She'd be better making it happen on her watch, and the sooner the better. I do, Deputy Adams, want to ask you in a second about the nurses' strike, but before we do, can I just ask you, do you fear a return to the hard border, and do you fear an escalation of the type of violence we've seen in Derry this weekend, if there is a hard border introduced? Well, first of all, I think we will see off those who are involved in Derry, and all of us must make a stand uh, against them. You know, there's an argument, hard border, soft border. I don't want to see no border at all. It's very simple. Uh, what, what, what we've been able to do for the last 20 years is to make the border increasingly irrelevant. I want to see it gone. I want to see a referendum. I want to see me and you and everybody else in the island deciding our future. I don't want our future to be decided for us by anybody uh, else. I, I think we can make agreements with our unionist uh, neighbours on the way forward based upon equality. So my, my concern about Brexit isn't that it will play into the hands of that small minority who are engaging in these acts of hooliganism. It's more got to do with uh, our rights. It's got to do with our economy. And it's got to do just with the sociability, especially in a border country, of people. This has got to do with people. This has got to do with people who who uh, should never have been prevented from moving from one part of the island to the other part of the island. And when you when you reduce it down up to the you know the borderlands, that's that's not being able to go into a neighbour's field or even go into your own field or or to up the road or to to, to bribe produce or to do business. Uh, that's that's where my concern is. It, it, it will have catastrophic effects unless unless we decide that we're going to sit to to, to figure out the future for ourselves, and unless the government is moved to bring about that forum, as Mary Lou called upon him called upon the Taoiseach to do yesterday, a forum to look at the future. How, how are we best served on this island? More division, more uh, temporary. Uh, Arrangements are a real republic, a new republic, new Ireland, a shared future for everybody on the island. In terms of the nurses then, Deputy Adams, the meeting yesterday between the HSE, the Department of Health and the nurses' unions, produced no outcome uh, to their bid to call off this strike on the 30th of January. What's your message to the government and how they're treating nurses at this moment in time? Well, the government have set its face at this time anyway uh, against dealing with the nurses the way the nurses should be. Uh, dealt, dealt with, and let and let me say that Sinn Féin supports the ambulance uh, drivers, the PANA ambulance drivers who are on strike, and uh, that 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 includes uh, at uh, the light at the county the county hospital, which is the sort of the head office for the ambulance drivers in 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 the, our constituency. So you know the, the 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 ambulance drivers should have the right to belong to a union of their choosing. And the nurses need to be dealt with uh, pro- properly. If you look over any of the uh, detail of what's been happening uh, over, over over the recent uh, past, 
that the government spends 1.4 million euros on agency nurses every single week. And in Our Lady of Lourdes and the Louth County Hospital, working conditions for nurses have become increasingly uh, difficult. And then and there, uh, in 2017, the HSC, the government spent 13.5 million euros on agency staff between those two hospitals. That's, that's a ridiculously uh, short-sighted policy. And I, I, I met with uh, the INMO General Secretary and with their North East representative, David uh, Miskell, just about two, two three people. But I, I talked to them at a telephone conference uh, just just recently, and they they told us that last November was the worst ever month for overcrowding in our emergency departments. That in 2018, almost 110,000 admitted patients have been forced to wait in emergency departments. And just recently, Dr. Fergal Hickey of the Irish Association of Emergency Medicine he described the emergency departments as warehouses for admitted. Inpatients, and he said the problem was not enough beds. Well, and obviously, Cahill, you want more beds, you need more nurses, and well, that means tackling the problems of pay. It means tackling the problems will, of retention. We will, deputy, and return. Recruitment. Yes, we will, deputy, return to this subject in the very near future with you. But thank you for your time this morning, thank this you, Jerry Adams, Sinn Fein TD for Louth. We'll be back after this. Michael Reed on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Cahill Dervin of the Irish Sun. Our text number, as always, 086 0800 658. And Marie will be in just after 10 o'clock with your comments. A lot of reaction to yesterday's interviews with local councillors regarding walking your dogs on the beaches in Meath. 086 0800 658. And you might like to comment on our interview just there now with Sinn Fein TD Jerry Adams in relation to Brexit and the nurses' strike. Speaking of government the legislation to protect farmers from compensation claims by hill walkers who use their land is to be introduced before the end of this year. The Minister for Rural and Community Development, Michael Ring, told RTEs this week that the state claims agency and not farmers should defend cases taken by hill walkers who injure themselves on private mountain land. Joining us now to discuss this is Floor McCarthy, Chairman of the IFA's Hills Committee. Good morning to you, Floor. Good morning. Farmers and hill walkers, what's that relationship like, Floor? At the moment, it has been pretty good over the last number of years because, I suppose, the, the walk scheme was introduced uh, a number of years ago and uh, there's a, a significant amount of farmers uh, drawing money out of the scheme. It's recognising t- their contribution to the, to the walk, to opening their farms to walkers. But, I suppose, the thing has moved on over the last number of years as uh, the increase in the amount of people walking, like you're area, the area, the people out of Dublin. I mean, Kelly, myself, the amount of tourism has increased. So we have way more people on walks, and there's other walks now, obviously, being heavily used. And uh, farmers are coming on the motorway, are being sued. We obviously had the case in Wicklow. Uh, it was defended by the state, and um, so nobody was liable. But obviously, it is. Can, a, you, can you remind us of that, that case, please, Flor? Uh, uh, a walker uh, fell on a, a pathway. And uh, there was a, they were walking along a, a boarded pathway. Uh, they, they, they tripped on a, a bit of wire, so they, they maintained that the state should have had the pet in a higher standard of, of repair. And on the, when they went to the high court, they, they were successful. But when they put to the appeal into the Supreme Court, the case was thrown out, which obviously we welcome because, you know, like I, I as a farmer, we're walking on, a, on an upland area. 
we can't be there the whole time maintaining the land. But we, obviously, we're not there creating uh, dangers for walkers. But all these areas are dangerous by their very nature. You know, obviously, if animals are uh, there, maybe cattle and things, we can't be responsible if people decide to, to, to move into private property. But what the walk scheme actually did as well, as far as, far as it recognised that what the farmers are contributing to tourism. And it, uh, I mean, wasn't paying them for the use of their land, but it was a recognition that actually they were contributing something to them. And uh, the, the tourism industry in the area obviously benefits majorly from these walks. But what we we obviously want, are pushing the government with a number of years. We now welcome Minister Ring's announcement that he's going to bring in a scheme to identify our landowners from claims by uh, third parties. So we, we, are, we would be hoping that he will get cross-party support for this legislation and that it will happen before the end of 2019 or the end of this government's term. As you, you've already said, Flora, I mean, this is an area of growth for tourism and an area of growth for potential income for local communities as well. Oh, definitely, and uh, I could see more flashpoints arising to, to, to about 10 to 12 years since the last walk scheme was used. It's 2 million a year. It's probably one of the most success, successful schemes out there. I felt that, you know, I mean, it's based on a payment for so many meters, so many meters of walk, and you, your contribution is maintaining that walk for the walkers. And there's a, a lot of more walks out there at this stage that need to be brought into the scheme. There are, there's a lot of walks people are using on a regular basis. There's absolutely no payment to the farmer. And I could see it becoming a problem again because the reason is because of the, the way tourism has grown, the numbers of walkers on walks. This walking is also becoming a way more uh, popular. And even with our own Irish people, they're out walking. I mean, walking has become, in the last 10 years, the way walking has come on is frightening. Mm-hmm. And the numbers of people that are actually out walking. And we're, it, we're all trying to live healthier lifestyles, Floor. Yeah, <laughs> and that's to be welcomed. And then about tourism as well, I mean, we're bringing more tourists into the country and more and more interested in walking. Say, if, we were talk, if I was talking to you 10 years ago, the people out walking were the poor people. It's the, it's the reverse today. It's the wealthy people that are on the walks. And they are also bringing a spin-off to the, to the local community and more opportunities for farmers. But was at the same time, even if this legislation do, does come in, uh, private property is still private property. So, I mean, we would still say that we have a right to block people, but by the nature, on open end, farmers don't, would prefer to have no conflict with, with outside people. But on occasions, let's say, people are bringing dogs, like you, you, just, you just mentioned dogs there earlier on, where the sheep near lambing and things, obviously dogs have to be on leads, they have to be controlled, they have to be chipped in order we know who owns them because they, they know, they, these are the downsides of walking. Careless people leaving dogs wander off. No, I mean, and they, they, they may not understand the rules of the countryside either. So. No, that's something you've said all in one. People actually don't understand they have to have their dogs. Mm-hmm. No, some people think if a dog is on a lead, it is, it is cruel. It's actually, when you're out in public, you have to have a dog on a lead and have them under control. But there is an, a certain element of people out there that actually don't realise that. And it's, you know, I mean, it's all about maybe training as well. I've run across people that think the dogs should be loose the whole time. They don't realise at night, dogs have to be either uh, on a lead or, or, or in a secure um, uh, surround because obviously if they're on, on, the, on the loose at night time, they can cause de- devastation, especially now in the next eight to ten weeks when we move into the lambing season. There's a major, you know, I mean, you're also very vulnerable to a dog attacks at this stage of the year because they're less mobile. So I would be encouraging all people also to keep their, their dogs on a lead and under control at night. Flor McCarthy, Chairman of the IFA's Hills Committee, we thank you for your time this morning. We'll be back after this. 
This is the Michael Reed Show with Cahill Dervin and thank you for tuning in this morning. Yesterday in a hard-hitting statement issued by Renew as European election candidate Michael O'Dowd, he questioned how Dublin Archbishop Dermot Martin had voted in the recent abortion referendum. Commenting on the issue, Michael O'Dowd said, I feel it is essential that the Archbishop states how he voted or whether he voted at all as many believe he is more interested in the opinions of Dublin broadsheet newspapers than in giving moral leadership on a basic human rights issue. We spoke to Michael O'Dell before we came on air this morning and I began by asking Michael first of all why he was running for the elections and was this central to his campaign? Well I think uh, Renew as a new political party took the decision to run candidates for European elections so I put my name forward and was nominated to run. I think we have something different to say. I think we have, there are issues in relation to the wider European uh, Parliament and, 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 and its importance in relation to Irish life that I think uh, Renew have, have uh, as I said uh, uh, particular policies that we wish to put forward and I'll be putting them forward over the next couple of months. You've been very vocal this week in, in terms of the abortion referendum last May and Archbishop uh, Dermot Martin who is scheduled to retire in 2020 when he reaches the age of 75. I'm wondering what the relevance of that to the European elections is and what the relevance of it is to the European Parliament. Yeah, that, that, that's a good question Carl. I think in terms of why we made a statement now is, is first of all since I announced that I was running I got a, I'm got getting a lot of support from people that were on the pro-life side in relation to the referendum and in terms of talking to them obviously they were still quite shell-shocked in relation to the, to the defeat in the referendum and there's a bit of soul searching and heart searching. And it uh, was a substantial defeat. It was, it was yeah. We, we, well, we got uh, 750,000 which was a substantial vote for, uh, for, for retaining the eight but yes there was a majority 66.4% voted for, for, changing against, the, yes. for changing the constitution and for putting the question into the hands of the legislature uh, which is where it's at at present and I think uh, looking at the campaign there was a feeling that perhaps in Dublin we could have done a lot better there was a feeling that for instance uh, uh, certain government ministers played ducks and drakes with, with the church in, in Dublin I think that, that that came across in terms of, of, of reviewing the reviewing the result but also I think post the result and given that there was quite a lengthy debate in the Dáil there was a feeling that again the, the, there should have been more leadership given in terms of some of the very uh, reasonable amendments that were proposed and didn't get the support that we feel they should have got. And the man who, who you feel is central to the blame for that is Archbishop Dermot Martin. Well I think I think Archbishop Dermot Martin I believe could have done more in relation to the referendum. Uh, for instance there was a situation where we had a government minister uh, continuing to, to read at, at church services during the referendum campaign while leading the anti-referendum side. I think she should have been requested to not to not to read at, at mass during that period, uh, and it, it actually uh, gave confusion to to, to to a number of people. So um, you know, looking forward, I think that the, uh, the the church has a leadership role. I think this is a human rights issue, and it's a, an issue that the, that the church should have a, should have a, a stronger say in. One of the points you made this week in in the in the statement that you released, and which was then subsequently carried across a, a number of media platforms, including ourselves, but you made the statement that Archbishop Martin needed to come out and say how he voted. Now, he was very categoric in the build-up to the to the referendum. And I'm quoting here from the Irish Times, he said that just as medical science allows us to understand much more about the evolution of the baby in the womb and his or her originality and unique identity, that we should simply throw out all constitutional protection of the unborn child. For that reason, I will be voting no. 
I, I do you th- believe he voted no? Yeah, absolutely, he said he voted no, and in a sense that was a rhetorical question. But there was a there was a, a an added uh, part to that question that was tell us why, and I don't think he explained why. Now he did in that one statement to the Irish Times, but I think he should, should have been and could have been much stronger. And, and I suppose the question I'd have for Archbishop Devon Martin would be: Would he agree with what uh, how Pope Francis characterised abortion, which was you know uh, allowing the the, the 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 Nazis with white gloves to to, to deal with problems? Or, or what Pope Francis also said in relation to it's like uh, hiring a hitman to solve a problem. So I'd ask uh, Archbishop Martin, do, does he agree with those statements? In but could he really have had an influence on, on, on the Dublin vote, Michael? Because I'm looking, I'm looking, Dublin voted in favour. The lowest vote in Dublin in favour was 74.02% in Dublin West. The highest vote in favour in the country was Dublin Bay South with 78.49%. Donegal was the only county that voted no. Yeah, correct. And I, and I, I think uh, he probably wouldn't have swung the referendum, but he certainly, I, I believe, that uh, that subsequent to to the uh, to the referendum and and that's the point I made in my statement as well is that we've seen we need some leadership in relation to uh, highlighting the fact that this is a human rights problem and that the legislature the Dáil could have accepted some of the very reasonable amendments particularly in relation to gender selection in relation to abortion or, or disabilities uh, which which is a particular issue that I have been campaigning on for for a number number of years Archbishop Martin of of, of very recent times has been on the record as saying that that those protesting outside abortion facilities need to exercise caution and we've seen in Drogheda already such a, such a protest on the 7th of January. How do you think he has responded to that and how do you think those protests are I, going? I, I, think, I think again that's probably a disappointing response. I mean th- those people that are outside those those clinics are doing so in a democratic peaceful, respectful manner uh, and, and they're not breaking any law and I think uh, if you see this as a human rights issue as, as, as we do, then I, I think it's, it's only right that people should put forward in whatever way possible, uh, their their point of view. Uh, I think in relation to you know, if, if people are unhappy with with the protests or if they're stopping people coming in, there are laws there. They, they you know they could get court injunctions, etc. Uh, but I think I think uh, he could have been more supportive. Of have people. you considered protesting yourself? I, well, I, I haven't done it as yet, but absolutely, I would certainly support people who are protesting. Uh, but but uh, I have I have no plans as 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 yet. I, I think it's highlighting an issue, and, and protesting is quite a strong word. I think they're just having a a, a silent vigil outside. Outside those, outside those, those places, uh, they're not uh, accosting people. They're, they're just, as I said, peacefully and respectfully uh, pointing out that this is a human rights issue and that the unborn child is, is perhaps the, the, the most vulnerable of all. Our, our but with their presence people. alone, that appears intimidating to somebody who may wish to avail of the facility. Well, I would hope I would hope people wouldn't be intimidated by it. Uh, uh, but but I can un- I can understand how if people do feel that way, and if, if for instance the owners of those establishments that they, that there are laws there to, to stop people being intimidated. Do you think in any way Archbishop Martin or anybody else could have stopped that vote and that outcome in terms of the way it swung so heavily in favour? I think you know I'm not I'm not here to um, certainly the campaign will be more than a single issue campaign for Europe. Uh, there's huge issues there around Brexit and the economy, but I, I do think that I, I, I do think that uh, given the scale of the defeat, uh, uh, no, I don't think any single person or any single uh, you know body could have could have changed that outcome. But I, I do, and I think this is really important. I think the uh, the, the, the campaign to, to ensure that the human rights of the unborn uh, are, are are met will will continue. 
and I think that I think that really is important. And despite the result, it is still a very raw and emotive issue, isn't it? It's it's a very it's a very it's a very strong issue, and I think if you look across the world, certainly in the states, I think uh, opinion has swung uh, back towards uh, allowing for the rights of, of of people that that are unborn. And I think I think that we certainly would, would feel that that's the way it's going to go in this country as well. But uh, I think to, to to we need to be on the we need to be on the the, the playing pitch. We need to be put be putting forward our views and that's that's certainly what I will do. We've already seen for example Padre Tobin has left Sinn Féin over this and do you think there's going to be a lot more fallout over, over the coming months and the coming year particularly with the election European and local elections around I, the corner? Yeah no I, well I think this is a this is a long game uh, Carl. you know th- this is not going to change overnight uh, those that were opposed to the 8th amendment took over 40 years to change it I think those of us who would like to see some sort of uh, um, some sort of provision in our constitution to, 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 to ensure the rights of people that are unborn, I think I think we'll we'll have to maybe wait as long as well. It, it'll it'll take time, but I think I think the the fight back uh, starts uh, starts now. Do you think it'll ever be reversed? Uh, well, I don't think we'll, we'll ever see the Eighth Amendment again. I, but I do think we will at some stage. Uh, well, I would hope to see that at some stage we see some rights for for the people unborn back in our back in our constitution. But uh, at present, I think the the battle must be to to roll back some of the some of the the uh, very liberal uh, uh, abortion regime that we have at present. And in terms of Archbishop Martin, has he made any response to you? Have had any contact from from the diocese? Well, Archbishop Martin hasn't responded. No, he hasn't. Uh, but like uh, you know. Certainly, uh, in relation to Archbishop Martin, I think he did a really good job in relation to his response to the Murphy Commission. Uh, I, I think that possibly uh, ha- has influenced his his, his caution in, in relation to other issues. Uh, I, you know, so, so I, I certainly wish him well, uh, but uh, no, he hasn't responded. And you have had people come to you say that they didn't like or didn't agree with the way he approached this. Particular well, issue. They, they felt that the, the, the Catholic Archdiocese of Dublin could have shown uh, better leadership during the campaign. And that was the loud base renewal candidate for the European elections, Michael O'Dowd. We did make contact with the Dublin Diocese to see if they would like to comment on Michael's remarks this morning. But as of yet, we've had no response. We'll be back with the news headlines and your texts after this. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. And welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. 086-1800-658, our text number. Marie, I'm delighted to say, joins me in studio with your comments. But first, Marie, some water news. That's right, uh, Cahill. Um, for people in three separate parts, of me that they'll be interesting, interested in this and probably not too happy to hear that their water supplies will be disrupted today. Due to an upgrade at Slane Water Treatment Plant there will be disruption to the water supply in Slane and the surrounding areas today between 10am and 4pm so if you're just waking up you may not have water. There will also be disruption to the s- s- supply even in Ballarath Wood and Ballarath Road Kells. Uh, water disruptions there today and tomorrow as well from 10am until 4pm due to water main installation and then in Dunboyne, Kilcloon and the surrounding areas residents there are being advised of water disruption from 5pm today due to an ESB planned outage. So there you go. And Irish Waters website I'm sure will have more information. I'm sure it's all up there. Getting back then to our listeners uh, we've had some reaction already this morning to your interview at the top of the show with Deputy Jerry Adams. 
Paddy from Drogheda says if Sinn Féin really wanted to have a say, then they should be using their presence in Westminster. But no, they stand on the sidelines and criticise. John from Naving is singing from the same hymn sheet, so to speak. He phoned in listening to your interview with Jerry Adams to say I was amused, says John is putting it lightly. He's criticising our government here for not looking after the people in the north. They have the elected reps above, as as John says, they have the elected reps above and no assembly. And they're allowing the DUP to run riot and say what they want. So there you go. Jim from Dundalk says that it is time, he feels, for a vote on a united Ireland, that the government seems to be giving it a deaf ear. But from what he can make out and from listening to Gerry Adams, there are many people who would be traditionally from a unionist background who think that being uh, in Europe would be better than having to be out of it. And for that reason, there could be support for it. And the North did vote in favour of remaining in That's the right. European Union. That's right. Um, Peter from Navin says that we could rue the day that we're talking about a United Ireland because as far as Peter is concerned, how would we be able to afford it as a country? He says, we find it hard to keep things afloat here. You just have to look at the homeless situation and we see the nurses striking because of pay and how many more areas in the public service will be striking this year uh, because of pay. The Gardaí aren't ha- happy. There's lots of people not happy and he thinks that if we were to become a united Ireland it would place, place too big of a burden on the country financially. So that's where he's coming from on that. Uh, another listener was in touch to say, listening into your interview, it's good to hear that Theresa May is insisting that the Good Friday Agreement is not up for discussion. But you'd wonder, is that what she's saying now because there's been such a backlash? Or was it not true at all that she was even considering it? We will never know, says this listener. It did appear on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, mm. which is quite a serious newspaper and is not prone to what we call in the industry, Marie, flyers. I know, but there's so, isn't there so much stuff every day that you hear? And it is, as Jerry Adams himself even said, you know, it's hard to know what is actually true and what's been floated. Um, moving then to your interview, we just had one reaction so far, but I'm sure there'll probably be plenty more when I go back out. Your interview there with Michael. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. 
That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. O'Dowd, uh, Mairead from Drogheda says, listening to your interview with disbelief, what relevance has the abortion referendum to the European elections? It's done. It's dusted. It's over. He lost. We won, says Mairead. If this is the platform that he's running on, I really do think he's wasting his time. Well, 086-1800-658 is our text number if you'd like to make a comment on that and we will, of course, have more text tomorrow. We will, yes, but can I go continue on then? Continue with today's. Can I continue with Absolutely. today's? I thought they were trying to no, shut me no. up for a minute, Carl. I was giving you Never. the look. Never. I was giving you that look. Um, we had an avalanche of, of reaction to the, the, the piece we did yesterday with the two councillors in East Mead, Sharon Tolan and Emer Ferguson, in relation to the beach man- management plan and whether or not dogs should be on leads, should be on, they be allowed at a certain time, should they never be allowed of leads. And it's amazing the different views that people have. Uh, Mary Jo phoned in and Mary Jo is from Drogheda and she says, I've had German shepherds for 22 years. They've never attacked or bitten anyone. I've had them on the beach loads over the years. I think it's extreme cruelty to man's best friend to restrict their lives so much that they can never run free. We can't organise our lives and society to such an extent that we are never at risk. I use Betty's Town Beach a lot. Both dogs, she says, unfortunately have now passed on. But over a 15 year period, she says she walked them on the beach they never were in a situation where they attacked anybody. And she says, I've never really seen dogs out of control there. But clearly Mary Jo was a responsible owner. On the other side of the coin, James phoned in from Ard's Cat in County Meath. And James says, I have a small dog and not a day goes by that I'm not on the beach. That some dog comes towards me that I'm nervous about. He says only yesterday morning, so this was the day before because he phoned in yesterday, a big dog came towards us and was circling round us. When I said to the owner about having the dog on the lead, the owner started effing at me, was quite abusive. I always do have my dog on a lead. Last year, I was bitten by a German shepherd on Betty's Town Beach and I'm asking people who own dogs to please put them on leads. So that's where he's coming from. He walks his dog, always has dog on the lead. Um, Jim and Navin says, how often have the authorities been asked to enforce the dog littering laws on beaches, streets, etc.? All dogs should be on leads or banned from public places altogether. Too much much talk and no action. Typical Ireland, no enforcement, says Jim. And Brian, uh, no, another listener was in touch to say that um, he walks regularly on the beach 
and has to say that most dog, and this is, I suppose, what you were, were alluding to there, Cahill, most dog owners are responsible. Yeah. But unfortunately, as in every situation, there's always a few. And he thinks that people should be able to make a judgment. If there's a lot of people on the beach, a lot of children around, you shouldn't have any dog off the lead because you never know what way they're going to react. But he says that if you're in a part of the beach where, you know, nobody's around, that you should, you know, I suppose... Be, a, be allowed the freedom yeah. to make, up, make the choice. And I suppose that's what Sharon Tolan was saying mm. herself, because she says that she walks her dogs, or her little dog, isn't it? What did a you chihuahua. say? Yeah, that's right, a chihuahua. <laughs> uh, and, and a tweet from a listener. I walk my two dogs on the beach off their, their lead if there's space, on their lead if there are children or people without dogs. I pooper scoop and I put the dogs on the lead if passing another dog on a lead. I walk up Tara and I do the same and do not go near sheep. Uh, another listener says that beaches along with parks should be patrolled by wardens, that most dog owners like myself, this is Trina, says pick up a lot more don't. Their dogs run way ahead of them and then they claim that they didn't see their dogs soiling an area. So in other words, they turn a blind eye to it. Uh, Sharon says on the management of beaches, that, and she attached some images. I don't know if you saw them. Anybody that's on LMFM Facebook, maybe have a look uh, of bottles being broken on the beach. And she says that she feels that this should also be included in the beach management plan, that this should be dealt with, that there's an awful lot of broken glass bottles and fires and that something needs to be done to address this as a matter of urgency. It has clearly raised emotions amongst people, hasn't it, this whole subject? Yes. And finally, can I just, and it really has, and and when I go out there, I'm sure there'll be plenty Mm. more because it is a divisive and people have views because people are genuinely scared of dogs. Mm. And even if you have a dog, I know myself, I have a little dog, but if I see a big dog coming towards me, I, you know, freeze. But at the same time, I can understand if there is an area that you are in that's secluded and and there's nobody around. Sharon and Eamor pointed out yesterday, there's also the issue of horses on the beaches, which is also under the the plan, the proposed plan. Can I just go back to something as we covered yesterday, um, the draft uh, spatial uh, regional plan uh, that's been talked about. Submissions have to be in tomorrow and we did an interview yesterday and Brian Hanrich, he just contacted me just to say that for anyone in Drogheda who, who wants to make a submission, if they go on to uh, the website emara.ie emra.ie and they'll see the draft plan on the home page and if they click on the link there they can make a submission through that so it's emra.ie And this is the proposal that Drada becomes a city? Well it's it's, it's one, one of the proposals of the that's been included in it yeah. And then the people in Dundalk are making their own plans as well aren't they? Well everybody I suppose is going to be fighting for their area and I'm, I'm sure allowed then as a whole will need to be considered because it's the regional plan. That's right that's right. As we know from all those football conversations we've had over the many years but Marie thank you for your time. No problem. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of texts between now and tomorrow and comments and people can ring in and email and yes. Twitter and Facebook and all those social media. Always glad to hear from yeah, everybody. And thank you for your time. We'll be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. And this is the Michael Reed Show. Thank you for joining us this morning. As always 086 658 if you have a comment on our interview earlier with Jerry Adams or the 
plans to stop dogs running uh, freely on the beaches in County Meath, please do get in touch. Marie will be back with us just after 10 o'clock tomorrow morning with your texts, comments and phone remarks, etc. Joining us now is Mairead McGuinness, Fine Gael, MEP from Midlands North West and Vice President of the European Parliament as we take another look at yesterday's Plan B proposals by the British Prime Minister, Theresa May. Good morning to you, Mairead. Good morning, Carl. How are you? You were back in the North East yesterday, I believe, to talk to Louth County Council about Brexit. I was indeed. In fact, before that, I went to a lovely school in Dundalk, St. Joseph's. So if any of the parents are listening, I had a beautiful visit. And then, as you say, we had an engagement with councillors in Lowes County Council um, about the state of play on Brexit. Um, And it's interesting, I I mentioned to the council chamber that the little children in St. Joseph's were asking questions about Brexit. So it is obviously the big topic. And there were very good uh, issues raised by the councillors, including Councillor Maria Doyle, who mentioned the issue of contracts. Um, because the UK, if it becomes a third country, we have to look at the consequences. But I think the real focus was on, given the short period of time left, what might happen. Um, And the meeting yesterday morning took place ahead of the statement made by the British Prime Minister to the House of Commons. Um, And her statement is worth reading twice rather than just reading the report about it. And I think what she mentioned uh, at the end of it is interesting. So she talks about three key changes are needed. Um, One of them refers to herself and how she engages with Parliament. So that's not something we can uh, have anything to do with. The second was about, obviously, concerns raised by MPs around workers' rights and the environment. And she did promise to embed stronger protections on those. And then her third uh, observation about the future was that And I quote, we will work to identify how we can ensure that our commitment to no hard border in Northern Ireland and Ireland can be delivered in a way that commands the support of this House and the European Union. So when I look at all of those things, um, I don't see, um, and I think this is a positive, I don't see the Prime Minister um, ditching the backstop, which is a, a common phrase, nor indeed did she come forward with any proposal to change it. She does refer in her speech to um, a sense among some of her colleagues um, that they might be trapped within the European Union by the text that is in the withdrawal agreement on the backstop. And of course, as I said yesterday, the European Union has no desire to trap the United Kingdom in in the EU. We know they're leaving, but the difficulty is... You know, I think it's 67 days from today to the 29th of March. We're still not sure how it's going to happen or what will happen with the deal that's actually on the table. Well, she may not want to ditch the backstop and she may want to protect it. Does she have time to save it? Um, I suppose it, we have to hope that she has time to save the withdrawal agreement. And in fact, the, v- the votes last week in Parliament would not indicate that there's, a, there's enough support uh, for her. Absolutely. But I think the vote in Parliament can be misread to say that the only reason such a large number of MPs voted against the withdrawal agreement was about the Irish question. That is not the case. Uh, Many of them voted against the deal because they would prefer to have a second referendum. um, And the Prime Minister ruled that out yesterday. Categorically ruled it out yesterday. She, She did, yeah. It's interesting what she said about a no deal, so leaving without a deal. And she said the the right way to rule out no deal is for the House of Commons to approve a deal with the European Union. I know that sounds like just logic, but sometimes it has to be written down and said. And I suppose the only deal that's on the table is the one that she negotiated. And indeed, much of what's in the withdrawal agreement around the Irish issue was proposed by the United Kingdom. So 
when I distill down her speech, um, what it says to me is that she is still working to try and achieve consensus on the withdrawal agreement that currently is on the table. She does talk about carrying out more consultation and perhaps going back to Brussels, um, but she does not say she wants to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement. I think that's quite interesting. Um, you know, she does mention, for example, there's another part of uh, the uh, total agreement called the political declaration, and she does reference that some in the House of Commons want more precision around the future relationship, which the political declaration deals with. So I suppose yesterday um, one could say that, look, nothing really changed. On the other hand, the fact that the Prime Minister has restated at least a commitment to what is currently uh, in the uh, withdrawal agreement is a positive sign. But I think your question is, is the pertinent one. Is there sufficient time? And what happens if we run out of time? And I, I did note a reluctance from the Prime Minister to ask for an extension of Article 50. And there would be some concerns here in the European Union about just granting an extension without knowing why and what... Well, it, it, may, be, it may end up in the lesser of two evils. It, well, it may be. Um, and I think that has to be you know, requested by the United Kingdom, agreed to by the European Union. And I think there would be an agreement if there was a sense in which uh, we need time just to get the uh, withdrawal agreement over the line. But what we can't predict is the, what will be tabled next week by way of a motion based on this speech, and MPs will be able to table amendments to it, and they will be voted separately um, on the 29th. So we're going to have to wait another week. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure we can predict anything in this Brexit debate at this stage. <laughs> but actually, I, I mean, the only thing we can predict is that uncertainty prevails, and that was the sense from um, the, the councillors in, in County Loud yesterday. Uh, and I've talked to all my Fine Gael, uh, councillor colleagues about this at length. You know, the uncertainty um, for, for teachers who might be living in Northern Ireland and teaching um, in Dundalk or the other way around, you know, that's a sense of, uh, you know, unease about what the future might hold. We, 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 we had a debate on this programme yesterday about the green card for your car insurance. If you cross the border on a regular basis or any basis, you're going to have to have a green card for your car insurance. There's a warning this morning from, from the trucking industry that only 60 lorries a day will be allowed to pass from north into south. We've seen the Confederation of British Industry say that 15 billion will be the cost of the northern economy of a no-deal Brexit. Did you get a sense yesterday in Dundalk, uh, Mairead, that people are absolutely in fear now of a hard border? Well, I think that, look, there's, there's many wise politicians uh, in that council chamber, and of course they are fearful of a hard border because but of... But even, even away from the council chamber, from ordinary people, you said you were in the school yesterday morning. Well, well look, everywhere I go, I think I said it previously on, on your programme with Michael one morning, that the weather used to be the topic of conversation when I was out and about. Now it's Brexit, because actually it's the first thing people ask me about, whether I meet them in the shops or at the airport or walking down the street. You know, and the question is always full of uncertainty, like, do you know what's going to happen or when will we know what's going to happen? And I think that when people um, point out the consequences of a no deal or a hard Brexit, and you've had a discussion yesterday and there are many other things that might arise, it does you know, make us all fearful and anxious um, about that possibility. And the fact that we're coming towards the end of January and March looms, uh, I think that makes us a little bit more, um, you know, fearful that the time issue will be a problem. Uh, and yes, um, I think that perhaps we have to have a little faith. And somebody said that they accused me of being over-optimistic, but I think we're all charged with trying to find a solution. 
And I think it's good to remind our UK colleagues um, that the proposal on the table uh, was literally, you know, requested by the British Prime Minister to have this backstop that included all UK and that the agreement was we would work towards a good uh, future partnership in the political declaration, do it within the shortest possible period of time so that the backstop isn't required. And I think the fears that are expressed, I suppose we have to accept them as bona fide, but we also have to say that, look, we all have agreed with the objective of the backstop. So unless you can come up with something else that, you know, leading negotiators have, you know, agreed to this text, they didn't do it overnight, they, they forensically examined it, that it would live up to what we wanted to do, then you really can't vote against everything, that there has to there, be a way out of this impasse. There is an alternative proposition, as was put forward yesterday by the Polish Foreign Minister, and I'm going to attempt his name, Zatovowicz, and essentially he said that we now have a game of chicken between Ireland and Britain, that two cars are running on each other and we will have a frontal collision. As a consequence, Ireland will lose the most and it will be obliged to provide the EU external border, i.e. with Northern Ireland. He has said that he would back a five-year limit on the backstop. Now, the Polish government have come out and said he was speaking independently. This was not a government decision. Simon Coveney, for example, has said this is not even up for discussion. What's your reaction to that idea? Well, I think the reaction of the Polish um, government and of uh, to Simon Coveney is exactly my own reaction. I think in the past there's also been an indication from, from a Polish um, representative of a slightly different tone than the rest of the European Union. But I think it's important to point out that while you know it is about Ireland, it's also about the European Union, and they are united around the, the draft withdrawal agreement, not just on the Irish question, but also on citizens' rights and the financial contribution that the UK will continue to make. Um, I think that the idea of putting a time limit um, on something that we're actually not wanting to uh, implement, it, it doesn't make any sense, because... I'm I'm firmly of the view that if we could get over this impasse, get this draft agreement um, approved both in my parliament, the European Parliament and the House of Commons, there would be an enormous amount of goodwill to work uh, uh, rapidly towards a future relationship that avoids the necessity of the backstop. But but is it not a worry that already one, one member state via its foreign minister, whether he's independent or not, is offering a different proposal and is is threatening this idea that it's 27 states and Britain? No, I, I wouldn't feel at all anxious about that. That's the least of my worries. And I think that uh, the Foreign Minister is probably now isolated um, because of the comments made by his own government in relation to that. And, you know, uh, you know there's lots of difficulties across Europe. Um, there are lots of other issues where people are divided on. I think on, on this question, um, you know, he was speaking independently. It has received no traction from anywhere else, and I think, in fact, it has garnered more support. And I think it's a distraction from the bigger issue, which is what might happen next Monday, that is the 29th, when the House of Commons come back again. And it will be interesting to see what amendments are tabled, who is tabling them, and if we can define after they're voted on what exactly the House of Commons wants, because it is impossible to adjudicate what the House of Commons wants from the last week's uh, you know, vote and debate. Um, we have a very divided House of Commons, obviously a divided society in the United Kingdom. There are those who continue to insist that the referendum results should be honoured, and that's what Europe is accepting. But there are many others who appear to believe that the um, best option is to put 
something to the people again, in other words, perhaps put the withdrawal agreement to vote or some other form of referendum. But then that really does open up your question about time. If it is, there's an extension of Article 50, if there are, and there will be Parliament elections for, for the European Parliament in May, and might the UK then have to take part? And I think that would be probably a difficult one for the European Union and difficult for the United Kingdom. So, again, I, you know, every week, uh, every Monday, I wake up in the hope that I'll see, you know, the fog will have lifted. And uh, indeed, it hasn't this Monday, or uh, this Tuesday, rather, uh, the morning after the night before, if you like. It's, in fact, it's quite snowy and cloudy here in Brussels, <laughs> but perhaps next Monday. We'll I, wait, I'd, we will wait and see. Mairead McGuinness, Fine Gael MEP for Midlands North West and the Vice President of the European Parliament. Thank you for your time and your thoughts on Brexit this morning. We will be back after this. Michael Reed on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Cahill Dervin of the Irish Sun. As you'll have heard on the news, a 65-year-old man with an address in County Meath has become the first person to be convicted of purchasing sex from a prostitute. Brian Mason of Motlands in Rathoth was yesterday fined €200 at Dublin District Court for paying, giving, offering or promising to pay a prostitute for the purpose of engaging in sexual activity with a prostitute at West End Village in Blanchardstown on March the 30th, 2000. 2018. Sarah Benson is CEO of Ruama, Ireland's only dedicated frontline NGO supporting women affected by prostitution and sex trafficking. And Sarah joins us on the phone. Good morning to you, Sarah. Morning, Colin. First of all, this represents a breakthrough under the new legislation. That's correct. That law was uh, commenced in March of 2017, actually. So this marks the first actual successful prosecution uh, under that new legislation, which for the first time uh, uh, decriminalised individuals selling sex uh, completely, um, but uh, created the offence for purchasing sex um, in the indoor setting, which it previously didn't. And the objective was to refocus attention towards demand and also to reduce the level of um, uh, organised prostitution in this country, which uh, would really represent the large proportion of how prostitution is organised here. What is the level at at this moment in time, do you think, Sarah? Well, the figures are very hard to actually pinpoint definitively, but uh, a relatively undisputed um, uh, estimate is you're talking about roughly a thousand uh, uh, people, but the vast majority being women in prostitution at uh, any one time uh, in this country, all over the country, in every, uh, every part, rural and urban. And some of them will have been trafficked? Absolutely. Our organisation uh, is a direct frontline uh, support service. We work with women in prostitution, but also uh, quite particularly also with victims of sex trafficking. And uh, we would have worked with uh, hundreds of women who've been trafficked into this country from all across the world. And it is one of the most uh, grievous uh, human rights violations that can be perpetrated against somebody for them to be trafficked into the sex trade and forced to have sex um, for somebody else's gain. And in terms of, of this legislation, I mean, it's taken two years almost for the first prosecution. Did that surprise you that it took that long? It did. I mean, we recognise that uh, this uh, the, this legislation is also enforced in a number of other countries. It's considered quite a progressive law because it uh, re-centres uh, the fo- criminal focus away from the person in uh, in prostitution and uh, takes a much more victim-centred approach towards their situation. But in countries like France and Sweden, for example, they have the mechanism to issue on-the-spot fines, for example, which proved not to be the case as 
this legislation has been interpreted would have made it an awful lot easier for the guards to uh, to do so. Um, so because it's a summary offence, uh, it requires a court appearance, so that required uh, uh, guards to think quite carefully about how to approach um, these first cases that they're taking and to take more careful advice from the DPP, for example. We would like to see um, perhaps some um, more... Uh, easy way for the guards to actually use this legislation, for example, using caution schemes and things which the SNI, for example, have done. Um, Because the the, the point is not to actually kind of, you know, uh, create a a really massive large-scale offence, but much more to create that very strong public message that actually this is something that is considered in law now not acceptable in this country, that it's driving demand, it's driving a a very exploitative sex trade, one that, uh, you know, where there's uh, people who've been trafficked, uh, you know, know, in different parts of the country right now uh, in apartments, in hotels. um, And so uh, we we would like to see it made um, more um, easy for for the guards to use. But we really welcome... Is that that a uh, a legislation change that's needed then? Uh, that's something we're taking advice on. Uh, the adult caution scheme, for example, is is uh, an instrument which the guardy can use, and uh, you know uh, there, there's mechanisms to explore whether that can be extended to include that particular offence without amending legislation. So uh, there is a review of the legislation which will take place. It's it's actually written into the the Sexual Offences Act itself after three years, which is a, a relatively short time for to test any new piece of legislation. But one of the things we will be looking at is uh, the facilities that the guards have to actually use it because uh, laws are only effective if they can be actually implemented. And this being the first case, are you, are you aware of many more imminent cases there may be? I believe there have been a number of other cases put forward, but we're not aware of any in terms of fixed uh, kind of court dates or, or things proceeding. But we would be certainly hopeful that this is not an isolated case. We don't believe it is. And I suppose our message would be very much, um, you know, to to ask anybody who uh, has been buying sex or anyone who's thinking of it just to say, look, is it, is it really worth it um, in terms of, uh, you know, it is a criminal offence and, and also you're never going to know if the person who you're accessing is under the control of somebody else or whether they've actually, uh, in in fact, been trafficked because the whole process, the grooming, the threats mean that um, somebody who's in those situations are told never to reveal that, um, that, uh, that they are exploited and they are told to make the buyer feel good and uh, to get a good review online. And so, you know, you you can never know. And so really, really, is it worth it, um, you know, to actually be a part of such an exploitative industry, um, you know, for the sake of, you know, a few moments of sexual satisfaction. But in what we used to call, Sarah, Holy Catholic Ireland, the fact that these people are now going to be named and shamed is going to be a massive deterrent. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that, that is, we, we, we didn't name the, the man himself that came out through the court reports, um, but it, it is a fact that, uh, you know, study after study after study of, of uh, sex buyers shows that the number one deterrent is actually getting caught. Um, and for our perspective, we're very tired of seeing, you know, women's names being put in uh, in the media, you know, when they perhaps have been uh, prosecuted erroneously for prostitution-related offences, when in fact they are simply vulnerable women who... Uh, um, find themselves in really difficult situations. Um, so, really, from our perspective, uh, you know, um, uh, it, you know, any offence, a speeding offence, anything like that, is subject to, to people being named uh, because it's in the public courts. And uh, uh, it is our preference that the, the people who could choose not to be doing this um, would be named rather than the women who themselves end up um, 
very, very stigmatised from their experience. Finally, Sarah, if there is anyone listening who feels they may need the help of your organisation, how can they get in touch? Um, they can find out more about our services on Ruhama, R-U-H-A-M-A dot I-E, or they can simply text the word REACH, R-E-A-C-H, to 50100. That's a free text. Um, so it's REACH, R-E-A-C-H, to 50100, and we will arrange a callback, a confidential callback for them. Sarah Benson, CEO of Ruama, thank you for your time this morning. Now, as you'll have heard on the news headlines and across all the newspapers this morning, 500 members of the Psychiatric Nurses Association who work as ambulance drivers in the National Ambulance Service have started strike action today. The army are on standby uh, and only uh, life-threatening cases will be dealt with by those ambulance drivers on strike. Joining to discuss this now is Peter Hughes from the Psychiatric Nurses Association. Good morning to you, Peter. Good morning, Carl. First of all, the reaction to your strike uh, action today, how has that gone down? Well, I'm here at the picket line in David Road in in, in Chicora in Dublin and uh, the number of cars and lorries that, that are going by and tooting their horns in support is uh, amazing. And the public understand, do they, Peter, as far as you're concerned, the public understand why this action has been taken? Yes, I think it's been made quite uh, clear through the media. Uh, circuits that, you know, this is about uh, our ambulance personnel members uh, wanting to be represented by the PNA and join the union of their choice. Your relationship with the HSE uh, in terms of recognition, when did this begin, number one, because the, you, you are the Psychiatric Nurses Association and these are ambulance drivers who, who have asked to become members of your union. So where did it start and, and where did it begin to go wrong? Well, the PNA have a 40-year relationship with the health services of representation and negotiation. Uh, nine years ago, ambulance personnel uh, were unhappy with the representation they were receiving from their union at that time, and they joined the PNA. The numbers have steadily grown over the years. And we now have 500 members. Uh, out, out, of eight, out of approximately 1,800 ambulance drivers. Well, we would have almost 50% of frontline ambulance workers, of paramedics, advanced paramedics and, and emergency medical technicians. Mm-hmm. So there is approximately 1,200 of those. We would have 500 of that. So we have a huge, uh, huge membership. And I think that's uh, indicative that the army needed to be deployed uh, today as a backup. And at any stage, did the HSE deduct union membership from your members? Were they prepared to cooperate at that level? They did up until January uh, of, of last year. Uh, and they stopped deducting for any new members uh, that, that enrolled with us. And then in August of, of last year, they stopped deducting those that they had previously been deducting union subscriptions from. Um, the rationale for that nobody has said it could be to do with the the, the growth of the of the union of the branch uh, and we we protested at that time uh, nothing changed uh, we our members were being denied representation uh, in other words so they were not getting uh, fair procedures uh, they were being sent letters on if it was an individual issue whether it be dignity to work, trust and care, disciplinary, uh, been said letters that they could only be represented by SIP2 uh, and therefore they were being denied representation. We have some stations around the country where roster changes have taken place 
uh, where there could be 15 ambulance personnel, uh, 13 of them would be uh, members of NASRA, and yet they would not be involved in any negotiations regarding the roster change. That is fundamentally wrong. In, in a statement yesterday, Peter, the HSE said that it is not appropriate to recognise breakaway unions as the fragmentation of union representation is not in the interest either of the public or of workers. What would you say to that? We are not a breakaway union. As I said, PNA have a 40-year relationship of uh, representing uh, members in the health services. So the ambulance personnel are a branch of the PNA. So under no circumstances can they say that the PNA we have we have a relationship with the with the HSE going back forty years. So this is no way a breakaway union. Have they engaged with you on this particular? Because this this strike was originally intended for December, wasn't it? This strike was originally decided for the nineteenth of December. We deferred it, referred the matter in to the WRC on two issues: one on the substantive issue, and the other on. Uh, meeting in relation to contingency plans for today. The HSE, to my knowledge, have got two notifications or invitations from the WRC, have not responded to either, uh, have refused to engage, and the only engagement we have had with the HSE is through their legal firm. We've had numerous correspondence in relation to contingency measures for today, which is totally inappropriate and irresponsible, as uh, contingency plans working off the HSE's own framework on dispute resolution needs to be face-to-face meetings because there are different nuances in each station and that needs to be dealt with uh, both at national and then ultimately at local level. So the HSE's response has been, uh, I could only say, unbelievable. Well, Peter Hughes, General Secretary of the Psychiatric Nurses Association, we thank you for your time this morning. We'll be back after this. Michael Reed on LMFM. And welcome back to the Michael Reed Show with me, Carl Dervin, 086 1800 658. Our text number, as always, and Marie will be with us after 10 o'clock tomorrow morning with your texts and comments. Time now for our weekly crime spot with the local guardie. And joining me in studio this morning is Sergeant Tony Ward from the Navin Station. Good morning to you, Sergeant Ward. Good morning. We're going to begin this week with a theft in Monaster Boyce uh, quite recently. Yes, uh, the Gardaí at Ardy Garda Station are investigating a theft from person which occurred at Red Gap, Monaster Boyce, Drada, at 7.15pm on Friday evening last, the 18th of January. During the course of this incident, it is reported that the injured party had been walking home when he was approached by four males in a vehicle described as a black Volkswagen Passat. The four males demanded that the injured party hand over his mobile phone, a black Samsung S6, prior to leaving the scene. Any person who witnessed the incident or may have information to assist the investigation are asked to contact Ardy Garda Station or the Garda Confidential Line at 1800-666-111. Now, a burglary uh, only yesterday in Black Rock in County Louth. Yes, that's correct. Garda attached to the Dundalk Garda Station are investigating a burglary which occurred at Black Rock Leisure, Main Street, Black Rock, County Louth, at approximately 5am yesterday morning, the 21st of January. During the course of this incident, the culprits gained entry to the premises through the roof. Any persons who may have, inf- have, may, may have been in the vicinity of Main Street Blackrock yesterday morning and observed any suspicious activity or may have information to assist Gardaí in their investigations are asked again to contact Dundalk Garda Station or the Garda Confidential Line. And also uh, in Navan on the 21st, an assault. 
Guardian Navin are investigating an assault causing harm which occurred outside the takeaway premises on Market Square Navin at approximately 3am yesterday morning the 21st of January. It is reported that the male injured party received a punch to his face sustaining an eye injury during the incident. Any person who may have been in the vicinity of Navin Town Centre area Sunday night and witnessed the incident which occurred on the early hours of Monday morning are urged to contact Navin Garda Station to assist their investigation. And also the confidential line, if they prefer that option, I'm sure is available as well. In terms of Drogheda then, we're going to go back to Drogheda burglary on Thursday of last week. Yes, uh, back to Drogheda. Drogheda Garda Station are investigating a burglary which occurred at the Carphone Warehouse M1 Business Park Drogheda at 1.15am on Friday morning the 18th of January last. During the course of this incident, entry was gained to the premises by damage caused to the front doors and it is reported that a quantity of SIM cards were stolen during the incident. Any persons who may have information to assist Gardaí and Drogheda in regards to their investigation are urged to contact them directly or indeed the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-111. Now, two incidents in Laytown beginning with a criminal damage case uh, in yesterday. Yeah, the Gardaí and Laytown are investigating a criminal damage incident which occurred at the Southgate Shopping Centre, Drogheda, at 11.15pm last night, the 21st of January. It is reported that during the course of this incident, two youths with their faces concealed lit a fire in the car park of the premises and what appears to be an act of vandalism causing minor damage. Any persons who may have information to assist Gardaí in their investigation are asked to contact Laytown Garda Station. And staying in Laytown then uh, Tony on the 18th of burglary. Yeah finally again the Gardaí in Laytown are investigating a burglary which occurred at Burke's Pharmacy, the Anchorage Bettystown County Mead at 3am on Friday the 18th of January last. During the course of this, inc- this burglary a small quantity of cash was stolen. Gardaí are appealing for any persons who may be in the vicinity of Burke's Pharmacy in Bellystown on the 18th of January and may have witnessed anything which could assist the investigation to contact them at Laytown Garda Station or again the Garda Confidential Line at 1800-666-111. And of course all information will be gladly received in all of those cases. You've launched a Lock It or Lose It campaign aimed at cyclists. Yes, the Garda Lock It or Lose It campaign is featured in detail on the Garda website. Almost €2 million Euro worth of bicycles have been stolen since 2016. On Garda Shikon are appealing for cyclists to take extra precautions in keeping their bicycles safe. The crime prevention advice given is spend 10-20% to 20% of the value of your bike on two locks. Lock your bike tightly to an immovable object. Keep the lock off the ground. And importantly, take a photo of your bike and note the serial number to have a record of it. And lock your bike indoors or in a well-lit area if possible. The campaign is highlighted in more detail on the Garda website, which features other crime prevention advice also. So that's advice for cyclists, particularly at this time of the year. It's dark at night, etc. It's easier for people to gain access, perhaps. So thank you for your time this morning. That's Sergeant Tony Ward from Navin Station with our regular crime spot with local Garda And we'll be back with that next week. Now, back in studio, Marie, comments, any updates? I have indeed. Can you hear me? Just a bit. Come, maybe come around here might be a good idea because uh, I'm sure we've had all sorts of uh, comments and responses from people in terms of dogs on Betty's Town and Brexit, no doubt, on the agenda as well. Yes, lots of people in touch today. That's better, I think, Cahill, isn't it? Lots of people in touch this morning. Derek was one of them and he responded to our interview with uh, Deputy Jerry Adams and he says he would have liked you to ask Jerry Adams about Padder Tobin and the way the Padder has been treated in Sinn Féin since Jerry stepped down as leader of the party. He feels that the party should never have let 
Paddatoe being go and should have been more understanding towards the Meath West TD, who now, of course, is independent and is in the process of setting up his own party. Uh, Matt text in from Drogheda to say, reunited Ireland and affordability, the Brits will have to compensate the Irish for 800 years of ground rent. Says Matt. Good luck. Uh, another listener says, uh, "This was Margaret who got in touch to say, listening into your interview with Maraid McGuinness, I always find she's a breath of fresh air when it comes to Brexit because she says it as it is." So Margaret's obviously a big fan of Maraid, but Margaret says that she's uh, very happy with. with what she perceives as the EU sticking by Ireland in relation to the backstop that so far they've given us 100% support and less hope that that continues. With the exception of the Polish Foreign Minister whose name <laughs> I'm not going to try and pronounce again. <laughs> going then to the, the story, have we time for yeah, one more? One, one the one. dogs the dogs on leads and I've loads of them that I'll come to tomorrow but just one, I'm a dog trainer modern my dog training, I keep a dog on the lead at all times, use long training leads that allows dogs to run and swim while having control at all times. Loose dogs can frighten people and children and you shouldn't have them loose on the beaches. There you go. And I've loads more more where they came from for tomorrow. We will talk dogs and plenty of other things including, no doubt, Brexit tomorrow. My thanks to Marie, to Maggie and to Chris. Paul McKenna is next. The news is at 11. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 